Good morning, Redeemer. We are going to be in a, uh, take a break from our normal series in Ephesians, and we'll be in Matthew. Most of you know that this is Holy Week or Passion Week. It is a week in the liturgical calendar where we actually go backwards, and we go backwards, and we think deliberately about the final week of Jesus' life on this earth. Well, not the final week, but the final week of his earthly ministry. And we're thinking about Palm Sunday, and, and that triggers uh, a lot of events that happen. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, every gospel writer, which is, which is fairly rare, it's fairly rare for every single gospel writer to write about the same thing. And you have gospel writers who omit the virgin birth. Gospel writers omit who Jesus' parents are. Gospel writers omit a lot of stuff, but one thing no gospel writer omits is this passage. The final days of Jesus' life. It screams to us that this is important and this is worth considering. And so we're going to take a break from Ephesians and we'll be thinking about the week that changed the world. And I want to frame that as, as Passion Week. It is indeed the week that changed the world. Now, why am I not restricting the scope of Jesus's redemption to saving humanity? You know that, right? Because in, in uh, one of the gospel accounts, when the people are praising Jesus and the Pharisees try to get them to stop praising, Jesus says, if the people stop, the rocks will cry out. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I'm not just here to save people. I'm going to save everything and fix everything, the whole cosmos, the, the world, the universe, the stars, and the galaxies. These all are things under the scope of my redemption. And so it's the reason why we're going to spend the next uh, three or four Sundays looking at particular elements of what has Jesus accomplished through his redemption. And we'll finish up in Revelation chapter 7. And the reason we're going to finish up there is because that's the last place you see palm branches in the Bible. And it's right there in Revelation 7 when the entire world is restored and there's no more sickness and no more sorrow and no more suffering. He will be our shepherd and he will snatch away every tear from our eye. So we're going to end there, but we're going to start here this morning with uh, the triumphal entry. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to look at Matthew chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the crowds went before him, and they followed him, were shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. 
Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessings now upon your word. Would you speak through your servant? Would your people have ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to track with the truth of Scripture? Father, I pray that if there is something that I utter that is not of you, that it would fall upon deaf ears. But I do pray, Father, that if this is of you, that you by your spirit would speak through the reading and preaching and applying of the word that we might trust in and see our faithful king and all of his glory and all of his wisdom and all of his might. For his sake, we pray. Amen. So um, if you want to just you don't have to do it here, but if you were to go back and look at the context of Matthew, Mark and Luke, they all uh, have Jesus doing one miracle before he goes into Jerusalem. And so you can look at it right here in Matthew. Just turn back over one page and it says, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed them. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and they immediately recovered their sight and they followed him. That a lot of scholars say that that is really strategic by Matthew, Mark and Luke because it's showing a greater need. You see, Jesus, before he goes into Jerusalem, and I would make the case on the path to die, he does one last miracle. And that miracle is to give sight to these men who can't see. And here's the beautiful thing about that passage is if we understand Passion Week correctly, those men there weren't the only blind men. And no one understood Jesus. No one fully understood who he was and what he was about to do. The disciples didn't understand Jesus and he had told them three different times, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And they had no category that he was about to be crucified. And so when we approach this passage, the triumphal entry with these two men on the road saying, Lord, give us sight. The right way to read that is for us to put ourselves in their shoes. Those men aren't the only men who need to see Jesus in his glory. We need to see Jesus in his splendor and in his might. We need to see Jesus in his work and what he's doing. We need to see Jesus as Jesus wants himself to be perceived. And the case that I want to make to you today is that after restoring sight, the first thing Jesus wants them and us to see about him is that he's a king. He is a king. He is the clear king for confused people. Now, what I want to do is unpack what is it? What do I mean when I speak of Jesus as a king? And I, I want to unpack it in three different ways and I'll work through it. But if you want to take notes, I want to make the case to you that Jesus is the promised king who sets himself apart from all other false kings. He's the promised king who sets himself apart. Now, to understand what's happening in Matthew 21, you, you, I think you have to understand two things. This whole idea of Jesus getting on a donkey and riding into Jerusalem 
and then Matthew quoting Zechariah, where in Matthew 21, 5, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you. So if you were to ask Jesus, who are you? He would say, I'm the king. But when you, you have to understand the context of it, and I think it makes sense in two ways, right? First of all, you have to understand the messianic, messianic promises and the messianic hope. What I mean by that, if you were living in Jerusalem at that time when Jesus showed up and you knew your Bibles, you were ripe. You were waiting for a king. Now, here's why. Because God told David, he told David that your throne will endure forever. He says someone from your own household will stand forever and his kingdom shall never have any end and he will bring peace to the world. And so if you were a Jew in Jerusalem right there, and you notice how Matthew's gospel starts off. Matthew, Matthew's gospel starts off the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, right? That, that's the first thing that when you open his book, it's telling you he's the son of David. Now, when Jesus, so if you were a Jew, that's what you were thinking. Your hopes were high. Finally, finally, the Davidic king has come and he's going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to defeat all of our enemies and we will live in peace. Right. That's the promise. But what was their reality in that day? They were not free. They had soldiers standing outside of their door. They had tax collectors overtaxing them. They had religious leaders who were in cohort with the government. Right. And so if you were a Jew, first century world, you got these two things and they're colliding. On the one hand, Lord, you've promised to deliver us. You've promised to send a king and now he's coming. On the other hand, this isn't our reality. Life sucks. It's hard right now. You know what that does? It creates this vacuum for anyone to show up. Anyone to show up. Will you be our deliverer? Will you be our king? And that's what you see in the scriptures, right? If you go back in Jewish history, about 150 years prior to this, I'll show you what that, what that vacuum does, that when you have this promise and you have this present predicament and there, there's disconnect there, it creates this space where the people are really gullible, right? Where you just want freedom. And so you'll take anybody who rises to the top. Well, it happened 150 years prior to this with the Maccabean Revolt. Alexander the Great had died and his kingdom was split into four pieces or four corners of the world. And there was a seven year battle, seven battles. And one was led by a man named Mathetius and he ended up having five sons. And the word for Maccabees, kind of the Hebrew word for hammer. And so his family, here's what they did. They led a revolt. They led a revolt against the Gentile oppressors. And they fought for seven years, seven different battles, and they removed pagan artifacts. Here's the thing, but it was short-lived. It did not last long. There's a reason when Jesus gets his disciples, Simon is also called a zealot. You get that? He's a person within Israel who wanted to use military force to ascend to the throne and overthrow the government. There's a reason when Jesus is betrayed that Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off a man's ear because they are totally missing it. They are so ready. They're biting at the bits that finally our deliverer is here and he is going to free us from Roman oppression, right? That's what Jesus is up against. All these misleadings, 
all these false kings who had promised to do something and their kingdom would not last. It is up against this that Jesus shows up. Now, the question that we have to ask of the text, what would Jesus do to prove to his people that the one that your heart has longed for is me? I'm the fulfillment. I'm the son of David that you're looking for. I'm the one who will extend a reign of peace. It's me. The question is, what would he do to validate himself to his people in a way that they would connect the dots and say, no, the king that we want is now here and it's Jesus. What would he do? He would submit himself to scripture. Follow me here. The fact that Jesus came to Jerusalem. The gate that he entered into Jerusalem and what he rode on when he got to the gate into the city are all bearing witnesses to the, they're bearing witness that this is the Messiah. And so when you think about the fact that, that Jerusalem, the house of Zion, the, the, the city of Zion, that all of these events are taking place right there, it's because the Lord had prophesied that it would. That when you look at how Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives. He did not have to go that way. There were numerous gates around Jerusalem that Jesus could have gone through. But in Zechariah 14, it says, on that day, his feet shall touch the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east. You, you hear what they're doing? that Zechariah is prophesying that the way that the Messiah would enter into the city is not from the west, it's not from the north, it's not from the south. He's going to come from the east. He's going to go on the Mount of Olives and make his descent or ascent to the city. It's prophetic. But it doesn't just have to do with how he enters Jerusalem. Look at what he says in chapter 21. He says, look at this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, there or then Jesus sent two disciples saying, now go into the village in front of you and you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and they will send it at once. Why would Jesus think about this? He didn't have cars. He iked it and miked it everywhere. That means he walked, right? Ike and Mike, right? He walked everywhere, right? Why would he walk from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem and then right before he goes into Jerusalem, oh, get me a donkey. It's not because he's tired, right? It's not because he's tired of walking. He has been walking. Why does he at this final moment before going into the city decide to say, hey, let's stop. Jerusalem is over there and there's going to be two donkeys over there. And he knows that they're going to be and he knows that the, the owner of the donkeys will give them to you and bring them back to me and put a cloak on them. And I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why would he do that? Why? Because notice what Matthew says in verse four of chapter 21. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That was written from Zechariah chapter 9. 
530 years before Jesus showed up. And you know what God was doing? He was telling Israel, if your king shows up from the north and he shows up on a horse, he is not the Messiah. But if your king shows up from the east and steps his foot, feet on the Mount of Zion and makes that ascent from the east into the city and then gets on a donkey, God is saying, that is the king. That is the king that you have been waiting for your entire life. You see what Jesus is doing? He is submitting himself to scripture so that those who would have had eyes to see and ears to hear, who would have been studying the word of God, that we would not make a mistake as to who he is. What is the likelihood, beloved, that Zechariah, who wrote 530 years before Jesus shows up, can predict he's going to ascend from the east, can predict that there will be a donkey that he will go and summon and there will be someone who will give up a donkey and this king will ride into the city on a donkey. What are the odds that, that any of this can happen? Unless it's divine. You see, we have to believe that either Jesus is crazy or Jesus is deceitful or Jesus is the truth. You cannot get around that trilemma. And what Matthew is saying, he is the truth. He is the one. Matthew uses this refrain, this took place to fulfill almost 70 times in his gospel. Jonah. Jesus says, when he was in the belly of the fish, it was really about me. The virgin birth that Isaiah prophesied, it was really about me. The water from a rock that was struck by Moses, he was really striking me. The bread, the, the manna from heaven, it wasn't just about them having food in the wilderness. I'm the real bread from heaven. If we're going to really take the Bible seriously, then one of the things that we discover is, it's beautiful. And there's one author, and there's one hero of the story, and his name is Jesus, and everything is connected to him. He says, I'm the real deal. Everybody before me, bootleg. Everybody after me, knockoffs. Don't follow a David Koresh. Ain't nobody else the Messiah. It's not Muhammad, it's not Gandhi, it's not anybody else. I am the one. Can you name to me any savior in the world who can validate his existence with material that is thousands of years old? That's going to tell him he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to flee to Egypt. He's going to be born of a virgin. Can any other king stand up and say, this is in my pedigree? Everyone has to sit down and worship him. You get it? Jesus is showing himself to be the promised king of the ages. And here's the thing. If you're a skeptic this morning, I'm going to ask you to, to, to run away from cynicism 
and to run towards biblicism. Let the intertestimony of the scriptures prove to you that Jesus Christ is really the king. Here's the thing, you cannot deny his existence. We just can't. You cannot historically deny that he did not show up. And I'm pressing and asking, man, if we would just, if you're a skeptic, man, let the Holy Spirit testify that he is the one your heart has been longing for. If you're a Christian, take courage in this reality that our faith isn't just blind. It's tried and true. It's predicted. God has done a lot to, to give us data to connect the dots that we might get to Christ and bow the knee and say, yes, he is the promised king. Now, the second thing we see is that Jesus is not just a, the promised king. He's also the perplexing king who will fight the right war. It's no secret that Matthew tells us, behold, you're king. And so this whole idea of Jesus being a king, he will wear that crown. But, the, but, but, but kings fight and kings go to battle. And here's the thing that, that we're starting to see about Jesus is he is wise and he knows which battles to fight and he knows when to fight them. That this crowd is in an uproar. They're rocking the city. They're laying palm branches down. They're spreading their cloaks. This is like coming to America when King Jaffe Jopher, kind of everywhere he went, they throw kind of the rose petals everywhere he went. I mean, he walks into a barbershop and these ladies go in before him. They're just throwing rose petals. He is like royalty walking. He will not let his feet touch the ground because he is dignity, right? They're dig a dignitary. That's kind of what's happening with this scene. Like Jesus kind of comes in and they're throwing palm branches and waving palm branches and taking off their outer garments and laying them down. Now, why would they do this? Two reasons. One, because something like this happened in the Bible. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 9, Elisha anoints a man by the name of Jehu as king of Israel. And notice what it says. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed, Jehu is our king. Now, here's the thing. What did Jehu do after he was anointed king, after his people spread their cloaks on the ground? What did Jehu go and do? He pulled some mafia type stuff, right? He was, he was, yeah, he was a thug, man. He goes on this royal assassination spree. He kills Joram, Ahaz Ahaziah, Jezebel, all of Ahab's descendants, and all the Baal worshipers in Israel. He was the only man who could wipe out Baal. You know what he did? He pulled this trick. He says, after he had went on this killing spree, he went and got all the Baal worshipers. Hey, you come here. You come here. I'm going to worship and bow the knee to Baal. And he tricked them, right? He got them all in the room to worship, and he acted like he was going to worship. And then he had his goons laid up all outside surrounding him. And after he faked worship and had everybody in there, he walked out of the place where they were worshiping and kind of threw a torch on it, right? It says, go kill them all. And it says that he wiped out all of Baal out of Israel. Think about that. 
they laid their cloaks on the ground and their deliverer went on a royal assassination spree and wiped out all the idol worship in their country, right? Keep that in your background as you read this text. But it also happens in an extra biblical book, or two books actually, First and Second Maccabees. We, we would not count that as a part of our canon, our Bible, but if some Catholic churches will have some extra books in there, First and Second Maccabees, there, there are two of them in there. Now, here's the thing. We don't count it as scripture. I, I, don't, want, I don't want to go into all of why, but here is one thing that's true about First and Second Maccabees, that, that historically there is historical truth in it. Is it inspired by the Spirit? No. But is there historical truth in it? Yes. And when you read First and Second Maccabees, you're going to read about this guy named Simon, who was the son of Mattathias. So he was one of the Maccabean brothers. And you know what he did? He went in and, and waged guerrilla warfare on the enemies of Israel. And he won. And they won. And they pushed back people. And then he goes and guess what he does? He cleansed the temple. And he cleansed the temple. And guess what the people do when he cleanses their temple? They wave palm branches. Now, Put those two things, connect those two dots, right? Now you see why they are on fire. Now you see why the city is rocking. Because in their minds, Jesus is going to be like Jehu. And what Jesus is going to do is to mount up and go on this assassination spree, killing all of our enemies. And what Jesus is going to do is what Simon Maccabeus did and go in there and cleanse our temple and rid our city of pagan worship. And here's the thing. Jesus does not do that. He does the opposite. You know what he does? He goes into Jerusalem. He does not clear the temple of Gentile stuff. He clears it from the Jews. You have made my father's house into a den of robbers. The problem isn't the Gentiles. The problem is you. You have defiled the name of the Lord. He does not go on this assassination spree killing people. He rides in on a donkey and takes himself to the cross to be killed. You see why he is so perplexing? He is this perplexing king because he knows he has another war to fight that they don't think needs to be fought. And so look at what happens. You kind of, I think you see it play out. You see it play out in verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Don't blow that away. But look at the question. Well, who is this? Look at verse 11. And the crowd said, oh, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In one sweeping verse, he's fired. They go from being in an uproar throwing palm branches, Hosanna, 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 save us, and dude shows up on a donkey, right? And you're like, oh, no, that's just Jesus of Nazareth. That's not our king. Who you going to kill on that? Who you got with you? I don't see any weapons. Oh, we know that little guy. That's just Jesus of Nazareth. Why does he not come in on a war horse but on a donkey? Because he is entering this city not as a conquering king to drive away Roman rule, but as a suffering servant who will fight the other war that they don't quite see in the moment. 
You see, they thought the problem was external. Free us from Rome. Get these soldiers out of our land. Restore this government that, that we love. And Jesus says, that king over there is not your greatest enemy. That king up there is your greatest enemy. And the reason this world looks like the way it looks right now is because you have offended this king up there. And therefore, my warfare is not going to be horizontal first. My warfare will start vertical. I will reconcile you to God. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, it works inside and then out. It works vertically, right? It repairs this relationship first, creature and creator, and then it starts to spread out and affect the world horizontally. It makes peace with God first and then peace with creation. It changes me and my status with God first and then creation and systems around me second. They wanted deliverance from Rome without deliverance from their own sin. And Jesus says this would be a tragedy of epic proportions. Suppose I freed you from Rome. Suppose I defeated their kings. And you died and went to hell because you had not made yourself right before the king of the earth. That would be a tragedy. And you can't make yourself right before him. He has to do it. I have to do it. He's perplexing. Sometimes it's not what's in the text that speaks volumes. What I want to do is, Jimmy, can you pull up that slide? So here's what I want to do. I want you to look at. All right. So look on look on the left first. Right. So it's not a mistake that when Jesus is when Matthew writes Matthew 21, four through five, no one will doubt that he's borrowing from Zechariah nine. And here's what I want you to do. I want I want us to look at what he leaves out. Now, first thing, look, look at look at verse four. This took place on the, on the right side. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying. So right there that he's not talking about a bunch of prophets. When Matthew tells us that, that Jesus did this donkey riding episode, he had one prophet, one prophet in mind, one verse, one scene from the writing of Zechariah in mind. And that's the scene right there from Zechariah 9, 9. So notice how Zechariah is written. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, here's the thing. Notice what Matthew removes. He doesn't say rejoice greatly. He doesn't say shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And he doesn't keep righteous and salvation is he righteous and having salvation is he why would matthew edit that stuff out here's here are a few options one he's just being sloppy that doesn't work because matthew was a tax collector right he was a professional accountant and he paid attentions to details. He was not a free-forming artist who kind of moves and does what they feel. No, this dude is by the numbers, right? And by the words and by the letters. His balance sheet, it has to add up, right? 
So what you have, okay, well, maybe he's not talking about Zechariah. There is no other Old Testament book that talks about a king riding in on a donkey. So we, he has to be talking about Zechariah. Well, then the question is, why does he edit stuff out? Why does he take this theme of joy out of his quote? Why does he take this idea of righteous and having salvation is he? Why does he edit that out? Here's the reason. Jesus' triumphal entry is not triumphal in the way that they think it should be. This is an atriumphal entry. This is not a time to say and to be excited. It's a time to mourn. You get it? Righteous and having salvation is he. Why does Matthew edit that out? Because Jesus is about to become unrighteous. That descent or ascent to the cross, it marks the period in his life where our Savior and King is becoming unrighteous for us. Why does he not have salvation with him when he rides in on a donkey? Because he only gets salvation when he raises from the grave. You get it? So the whole tone of the crowd, it's off. It's in left field. And Matthew himself validates that for us. Thank you, Jimmy. Greg Beal is the scholar of scholars when it, comes to come, when it comes to the Old Testament being used in the New Testament. This is what he writes. Unfortunately, the tone of Zechariah's narrative is lost among the crowds. Their response suggests that they are looking for a triumphant, nationalistic, and even militaristic king, whereas Jesus, at least during this advent, enters Jerusalem, Jerusalem peacefully, humbly, and ready to submit himself to the crucifixion. The story from Jesus's and Matthew's perspective is more labeled the atriumphal entry. It is natural, therefore, for Matthew to omit righteousness and victorious from his quotation since he recognizes that the earthly triumph and power will only come at the second advent. Indeed, by the end of the week, it will be clear that Jesus' coming to Jerusalem, despite leading to his own death, was actually God's coming to the city of Jerusalem in judgment. See that? Now, here's the question. Jesus is saying yes to something and he is saying no to something. What is he saying no to? I want you to feel what it would have been like to be there in first century Jerusalem at this time when your king is coming to free you supposedly. And you think right, you think that this soldier with these guns outside. Well, they didn't have guns, but these soldiers with these weapons outside of my door. That's the problem. Get rid of them. That old wicked king that's running this country, he's the problem. Get rid of him. All these high taxes we're paying because the tax collectors, they got to make their money and they're working for the king and they're working. Uh, you get it? And notice what Jesus says no to. I will not replace that king. I will not lower your taxes. I will not remove soldiers out of your land. He is saying no to some really important stuff. But you know what he's saying yes to? I will reconcile you to God. 
and I will make atonement for your sins and I will unite you with my father in heaven and he will give grace upon grace upon grace and you will be a child and daughter and son of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He says, that's what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to fight that battle. And you know what it means? Regardless of who's over you, regardless of the taxes you pay, regardless of how unsafe you feel, what I'm doing over here is your primary need. Now, here's the thing. What I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the Lord does not care about this. Because in Revelation chapter 7, he says, I'm going to snatch away every tear from your eye. And there will be no sin and no darkness and you will walk in peace and I will be your shepherd and I will give you all things and I will rule. So let us not make the other mistake, the other mistake of thinking that God does not care about our secondary needs. Like how safe are we and how much we're being taxed? You get it? Like, let us not make that mistake to think that he doesn't care. He does care. But the order of the kingdom, let me make you right with God first and I will transform your world second. You get it? You see the way the kingdom works. And in Revelation chapter 7, guess what God does? He takes the people who have been born again and he brings them into his new kingdom and its reign will be no end. But for a season, God's people have to live. Justify in the sight of the Lord and on the earth where it's hard. Here's the thing. Which type of savior would you want? A savior who can temporarily fix this and you spend eternity in hell? Or a savior who rescues you from the wrath of God and promises you, I don't care what situation you're in, in plenty or in excess, I don't care who's ruling, I don't care if they kill the body, you're safe with me. Which king do you want ruling over you? I'm choosing this king all day, every day. You get it? That's the king. He fights the right war. Our greatest enemy is not Rome. Our greatest enemy is not, it's, it's not the tax collectors. Our greatest enemy isn't the soldiers in their city. Our greatest enemy is God. And he's made provision to reconcile us to that king. That's what Jesus is doing. That's why he's perplexing. And I want to say that to us this morning. Man, I know we live over here and life can just be hard. It's just hard. I'm, I'm watching an uncle die right now. And it's hard to watch him suffer. Some of your, your marriages are hard. Some of us, we lose our jobs and life is hard. And I want you to know that your God has not forgotten about you. That he has reconciled your soul to God. He has made peace with you and you are loved and beloved by him. And though we live right here in the brokenness of our world, let us not forget that the greatest act of deliverance has already happened. And this over here has an expiration date on it. It has a shelf life. One day the same king who saved you is going to come back and make this world and make you all anew. And until then, we rest in him.
and we wait for him. The last thing we see is that he's not just the promised king. He's not just the perplexing king. He's also the powerful king who will win this war that he's fighting. I'm going to close with this. I won't, I won't keep us too long. But I, I, th- I don't think it's a coincidence that every gospel writer, before Jesus goes into Jerusalem to die, might, might I add, that they always leave us with something right before it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they show Jesus restoring sight to a blind man. You know what John does? He says the last great miracle of Jesus is giving life to a dead man. Lazarus, in John's gospel, Jesus goes into Jerusalem after he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And he doesn't have to touch him. He just says, Lazarus, get up and come out. Now think about what they're all doing. They are building Jesus' resume for you and I that we might look at his resume and then extrapolate and trust that this same guy, the same Messiah who told the winds and the waves to come down, the same Messiah who fed 5,000 and 4,000 people, the same Messiah who touched the eyes of a blind man and creation obeyed and this man could see, the same Messiah who, 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 that can command death and tell a dead man to get up that's the God. That's his, that, that's his body of work, so to speak. Everything he's done prior to now is bearing witness that when he goes into Jerusalem, he's not going into Jerusalem with a question mark or maybe over his head. He is going into Jerusalem to the cross with he will do it and failure is not an option. It's not in his category. He has shown us his power over life. He's shown us his power over death. He's shown us his power over creation. The winds and the waves obey him. And you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to connect the dots and say two things. First thing, he will accomplish the greater victory on the cross. He will do it. And what about creation? Will creation listen to him? Yeah, he's going to win that one too. Look at his body of work. That's the good news, beloved, that failure is not an option. It's not in the category of our king. He is powerful. So what do we do with all of this? I think we just rest in it. You see, because Jesus says, I'm the king, he actually frees us to be his servants. He says, I'm the king. I will fight these wars and I will fight these battles. You know what he's actually communicating to us? Let me do it. You can't do this. I can. Rest in me. Worship me. Honor me. Follow me. That's good news, family. He's done it. And he's saying rest and trust. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would allow these truths to sink deeply into our hearts this week. Help us to live as citizens of the Most High God. Help us to be okay with your no's, the no's in life where you don't give us 
these seemingly important things. Thank you for giving us the greater things, salvation and righteousness and joy and peace and hope and forgiveness and grace and mercy. I pray that we would learn, Lord, to live out of that reality, that we would live out of the reality of your kingdom. It has come, and one day soon it will be finished. Help us to persevere, persevere and to press through until the end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.